I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Okay, so today, in our continued study of Jesus in the Old Testament, we're, we're approaching the issue of Melchizedek. This is a hotly debated guy. Uh, the question is, how is Melchizedek a type of Christ, and is he actually Jesus? Because a lot of people think he's actually Jesus literally showing up at Christophany in the Old Testament. And so uh, I'll unpack all these ideas, but I think personally, and I could be wrong here, this is my opinion, is that Melchizedek gives us kind of like a, a template for one of the ways in which we will look for other types of Jesus in the Old Testament. Because it's like we're saying, hey, if this is how God shows us about Jesus in the Old Testament through Melchizedek, then maybe he does the same type of thing through other people in the Old Testament. So that's that's kind of where we're going to be going. So I'm going to try to showcase those those things for you to uh, to look at. Now, Melchizedek, <clears throat> it's difficult sometimes for the brain to think about Melchizedek, but it's not difficult to get the passages. There's only four passages in question dealing with Melchizedek. The uh, the first time he shows up is in Genesis 14. This is where he shows up and he and he meets Abraham. So we read up in Genesis 14, we read about the story of how Lot and his people, Lot and the people he's living with, they were taken captive by some foreign king. And Abraham goes with, an, with his army and he rescues Lot. So he saves Lot and brings him back. And he's coming on his way back from this battle with all these multiple kings that just fought. And we pick up on the story in verse 17 of Genesis 14. It says, After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, and that's the first time he shows up in the Bible, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest, he was priest, excuse me, of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's all we get. Like, that's all we have about Melchizedek. And you wouldn't think that much about him. You'd kind of be like, who was that guy? Like, what was going on? But there's more we get in Psalms, and then there's more in the book of Hebrews, where it directly tells us Melchizedek is related to Jesus. So, let's unpack. Here's what we know about him. Here's a little we just got. Right? We hear his name, which was? Melchizedek. All right, we all got that. I think you came in here already knowing that information. <laughs> but, uh, but his name is Melchizedek, and he's the king of a place called Salem. Now, this may well be Jerusalem, and I'm inclined to think it is Jerusalem. There are, back then, as there are today, there are multiple cities with the same name. So, there, Jerusalem, though its old name was Salem. That was just the name of the, of the place before it was called Jerusalem. Psalm 76.2 supports this. It says about God, His abode has been established in Salem, His dwelling place in Zion. So, even years later, it was still sometimes referred to as Salem, not just Jerusalem. Because Zion and Jerusalem are the same location, basically. So, some people think maybe this thing, King of Salem, is actually a title. Here's one of the debates, the hotly debated issues on Melchizedek. He's the King of Salem, but that's just a title. Because we find out later, Salem means peace, as many of you already know, right? Salem means peace. So maybe he's the King of Peace and it was a title type thing. I have a problem with this because if you read Genesis 14... We have lots of guys who it says they're the king of, king of, king of, and they're always locations. They're never titles. So 
Amraphel, king of Shinar, right? Arioch, king of Elassar, Tidal, king of Goyim, Bera, king of Sodom, etc., etc. And it's even in the same passage, right? In Genesis 14, 17, uh, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. So we have the king of Sodom, then we have Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem. So I think it's not a title. I think the context seems to indicate like an actual place. He's a king of an actual place. Um, and now what does he do? So he's Melchizedek. His name is, he's the king of Salem. He brings out bread and wine. And I can't save this for later. Like, how can you miss <laughs> the implications of him bringing out bread and wine? Like, how can you possibly miss the obvious implications of this? I mean, Jesus comes and he dies for us and then gives us a symbolic representation of his sacrifice in bread and wine using the Passover. But now when we read Melchizedek, we realize this picture, this symbol goes back before Passover, that it was even being used back then. So he gives him bread and wine. Uh, that seems pretty obvious and pretty neat to me. He's also a priest. He's a priest. So he's a king and he's a priest. And what kind of priest? He's not Levitical. So in the timeline of Israel, Abraham's like around 2000 BC. Right, but, but the Levitical priesthood and the Mosaic law and all that sort of structure given to Israel didn't happen until around 1400 BC, at least by my reckoning, around 1400. So we're saying the Levitical priest didn't exist. In fact, we have no idea how this guy was doing what he was doing. We just know he was a priest, but it's, he's not Levitical. But was he a pagan priest? No, it says he's a priest of God Most High. This is often how the pagan kings might have referred to the God of Israel because the Israelites were claiming that their God was above all. Their God was the one creator of all things because they were monotheists. So when it says he was the, of the, the uh, priest of God most high, that is to say the true God. So he's a non-Jewish priest of the true God who brings out bread and wine to Abraham. And, all, and that story is getting real interesting now, you know? Like, this, who is this guy? Well... We don't know the details, but we know um, priest, king, Melchizedek, king of Salem, all that. And then the last thing is, uh, well, two things, really. Abraham tithes to him. The word tithe just means 10%. So Abraham gave him 10% of everything Abraham had. He gives it to Melchizedek. And then Melchizedek blesses Abraham. So if anyone doubts who Melchizedek is, that he's priest of the most high God or the God most high, Listen to the blessing that he gives. He blesses Abraham in the name of the God who is the possessor of heaven and earth. That's a monotheistic claim. Because what the Hebrews, the, in Hebrew, they don't have a word for universe. When they want to refer to everything in creation, they go heaven and earth or heavens and earth. That's what they say. So when he says possessor of heaven and earth, that is really a claim that this is the God of all things. And then he refers in verse 20 to the God who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And we know it was God Almighty who blessed Abram in that battle and gave him the victory. In Genesis 14, 22, Abraham, later on, it says, um, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. So obviously the, the textual clues are there. This may not seem important to you guys, but if you listen to the debates on Melchizedek, some people will say it was a pagan god that Melchizedek was a priest of, but that's not what the text says. And sometimes scholars, as much as we love and appreciate scholars, and sometimes we don't love and appreciate them very much, actually, um, sometimes they get so caught up in reading extra-biblical texts that they forget to check the biblical text. And I think here the biblical text makes it clear. He's uh, the priest of God most high, the one and only God.
So really interesting and definitely incomplete. And you notice that there's like a bunch of puzzles we just laid out. Who is this Melchizedek guy? How is he a priest of God, but not, not Levitical and not from Abraham? Why does he bring out bread and wine? Why is Abraham tied to him? Why does he bless Abraham? Like, what is going on here? I think that the Old Testament lays out lots of questions. And then Jesus comes out and gives us a bunch of exclamation points, right? He turns the questions, whoop, straightens out those little question marks into exclamation points so that we go, whoa, instead of, huh? And um, that happens over and over again as I study the Old Testament. I get these whoa moments that before seeing Jesus there, we're just like, huh, what's going on? So the next time he shows up is in Psalm 110. So let's look at Psalm 110. Genesis 14 is the first time. Psalm 110 is the second. This is, uh, Psalm 110 is clearly messianic. It's a fairly short psalm. It's just seven verses. We're going to read through the whole thing. And um, it is actually quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament. So Psalm 110 is, is the most popular New Testament psalm to quote. And we actually have Jesus himself quoting it um, when he decides to um, stump the Pharisees. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, He decides to stump the Pharisees with a question about this verse. So Psalm 110 verse 1, it says, A psalm of David, the Lord says, and that's capital L-O-R-D, so that's Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, this is the verse that Jesus quotes. David writes a psalm, and according to, to Jesus, that's who is the author of this psalm. So David writes the psalm, and David says, Yahweh says to my Lord, David's Lord, whoever that is, and then Jesus uses this to stump the Pharisees. So if you would, turn to Matthew 22, but keep your place in Psalm 110, and you might keep Genesis 14 open and be ready for Hebrews chapter 7. We'll be going there too. Huh? Uh, Matthew 22. Verse 41. So we know how the Pharisees used to try to stump Jesus, right? What they did was they would come up and ask him a hard question. There's a woman, she had a husband, and the husband died, and she married another guy, and he died, and married another guy, and he died, and married 53 other guys, and they all died. I'm exaggerating. Um, and then, you know, whose wife will she be in heaven? And Jesus would answer, like, you don't know the power of God, you don't know the scriptures, like, they don't marry in heaven. So he would, uh, which is, which is, it's, it's great how Jesus could answer the skeptics questions, even the trick questions. I think that's really interesting, but they couldn't answer his. So in uh, Psalm, uh, excuse me, in Matthew twenty-two forty-one, we have where Jesus asked them a question. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? That is the Messiah. Remember Messiah or Christ, same word, two different languages, right? Messiah is the Hebrew, Christ is the Greek. And so but it's the same exact word. And um, he goes, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. It was well known that he had to be a descendant of David. The promises came through David. But Jesus wants them to understand there's more to the Messiah than just a lineage from David. So verse 43, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Now think for a second, pause. (laughs) Think for a second about what Jesus is saying about the Old Testament. How David, in the spirit, calls him Lord. He's saying that David was inspired by the Holy Spirit while he was writing the scriptures. That's an interesting, interesting thing. So how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet? Question mark. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. 
this happens on social media, right? When someone tries to challenge you as you're sharing your faith, and then they try to challenge you with trick questions. And if you're able to have wisdom, hopefully, and grace, but, but wisdom to get on target and answer, and then they just stop asking you questions after a while. <laughs> and, and I mean, some people don't. Some people don't ever get the clue, and they just continue to ask questions forever. Um, but they decide not to ask Jesus any more questions after this. Now, Jesus, th- he quotes this in Mark twelve thirty six, in Luke 20, verse 42 and 3. Um, in, in Acts 2, verses 34 and 35, it's quoted by Peter. Uh, in Hebrews 1, 13, it's also quoted this particular psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That is quoted over and over again. And it's always quoted for the same basic reason to establish that the identity of Messiah is greater than David, or is Lord, or is better than angels, or he, it's showing how high and lofty Messiah is. So yes, he'd be the son of David, but he'd also be his Lord. Now, that's a question mark, isn't it? How is he the son of David and his Lord? Jesus answers that with a big exclamation point. <laughs> he goes, look at my identity. I'm the son of man and the son of God. That's how. So then in, uh, back to Psalm 110. Back to Psalm 110. So now, now you see this. My point of that little detour was this. This is a messianic psalm. For sure. Not only did the, the, the Jews know it back then, this was messianic, but uh, it's quoted throughout the New Testament as being so. So let's continue reading Psalm 110. Now we know it's got this like really important messianic thrust. Verse 2, it says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The general thrust of verse 2 is that this person that David's speaking of will be king. right? Ruling with a scepter, that's a king. That's a royal kingship that he has. He's the son of David, but he's the Lord, and he's also got a, he's a king. Let's keep reading verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And here's where Melchizedek comes in. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he's, this, he's the son of David, yet he's the Lord. He's going to rule as king, and yet he is a priest and it's after the order of Melchizedek, not the Levites, not the Aaronic priest. No, Melchizedek. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So I just want to finish reading it so we can get it all in our minds. But the basic idea in Psalm 110 is we have a ruling king who is also a priest a king and a priest. And we have one particular example of that in Melchizedek, who was a king and a priest. Interesting. Interesting. One of the ways they knew this was about uh, Messiah is that it was never fulfilled in David. Um, this is pretty simple. Um, it highlights the the usefulness of different prophecies. And I keep, I keep pointing this out. There's a concept I want us to get because it's really helpful. All prophecy or foreshadowings are not always evidence for the Bible. Sometimes it's just theology. Like you're just learning theology. Some prophecies, they prove God spoke, right? So I I read about like the destruction of Tyre in Ezekiel. I read about Psalm 22 and how the Messiah will will suffer describing crucifixion before it was invented. You know, I, I, and Jesus quoting it on the cross. Like some things are really like, that's evidence for God's inspiration of the scriptures. But not all prophecies like this, which is why sometimes if you're studying prophecy, you're like, how is this going to help me prove to this skeptic that the Bible's God's word? And my answer is, it's not. Like, not every prophecy is for that one purpose. Some is, and use those prophecies for that. Some prophecies just give clarity on theology. And that's what Psalm 110 verse 1 was about. Just clarifying who this Messiah is. 
So you get better theology. That was what that was about. Um, and some are just there to encourage, exhort, or strengthen people. It's not about proving anything. It's just about encouraging your heart, God speaking prophetically in these, in these ways. So it's, it's not like the only purpose of the Bible is to prove that the Bible's from God. God actually has things to say once you realize it's from him. And so he has other things to add. The reason why I labor on this is because sometimes, and maybe even now, you know, watching online, there's a skeptic who would look at these things and go, that doesn't prove Jesus is, that doesn't prove he's the one, that doesn't prove, but that's not the point, right? That's the evidence for the Bible series. I did a whole 20 part series on that. <laughs> that's, that's the point of that series. This is theology we're digging, digging into. Um, so let's now, now we've got the two Old Testament passages, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. And now we're going to go right to the New Testament to how it interprets these things. So turn to Hebrews chapter 5. It comes up briefly in Hebrews 5. We're going to read a chunk of this. And then the next passage will be in Hebrews 7. So Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 7. So in Hebrews 5, um, it just just kind of... I, I wasn't going to read Hebrews 5, but I decided we should just go ahead and just read the whole thing just to absorb it because it helps set the stage for what he's talking about in uh, Hebrews 7 about Melchizedek. So we already know Melchizedek is a priest, he's a king, and then the Messiah will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, whatever that means, let's find out. Hebrews 5.1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when he's only uh, when called by God, just as Aaron was. So far, this is all about the Aaronic priesthood, right? The Levites, this is their priesthood. But there's principles to learn. So also, verse 5, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son today have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Where's that from? Psalm 110, right? So quoting it again. Um, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Um, Yes, the New Testament is not always nice. (laughs) It's not always kind to you, in a sense. Um, you become dull of hearing. And the next whole chapter, chapter six, he talks about how dull they are and how he's like, what, there's really no point in me starting over with salvation with you guys. Look like you either receive it or don't. Now I'm moving on to talk about Melchizedek. This is next level Christianity stuff. But if I have to rebuild the first floor with you, there's no point. I mean, it's a really scary passage, Hebrews six, which I'm thankfully not teaching tonight. Um, (laughs) Yes. So, yeah, save that for later. We all have questions about Hebrews 6. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot here, but just to mention, here's a little bit of what we get so far in Hebrews 5 about Melchizedek, right? Priests help people in their relationship with God, especially dealing with sin. Okay, Jesus fulfills that. Um, They have sympathy because they have weaknesses too. In fact, their weaknesses often stem from their own sinful natures. Jesus is separated from them a little bit there. 
he had weak physical weakness, but no sin. And so he, he understands the frailty of humankind, but, but wasn't sinful. So there's a difference there. And Jesus is a high priest, but he's unlike the Aaronic priests. He's a Melchizedekian priest. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he saves, quote, all who obey him. So I, I just got to mention really quick, because in the Mormon church, they believe they have an active priesthood called the Melchizedekian priesthood. And the young men in the Mormon church will be ordained as priests after the order of Melchizedek. That's a total twisting of the scripture. There's only one person who's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. His name is Jesus. But what, because this is a confusing passage, because it's a hard passage, this is what oftentimes cult groups do, is they take hard passages build really detailed theology systems based off of a confusing passage and then they make you try to accept it because they quote a verse you don't understand. And it's really kind of a a weird tactic they have. Never let someone cause you to embrace all this theology because you don't understand a verse. Like just, (laughs) just go, I don't understand that, but I don't think it says all that. Like that's fair enough to say and it will protect you. So yeah, there's just one guy who's a priest after Melchizedek and his name is Jesus. So Hebrews 6 verse 20, the last verse in Hebrews 6, we come to our final passage about Melchizedek, and then I'm going to try to answer a bunch of questions. We've laid out a bunch of those things so far, and we'll try to get to the answers. Verse 20 of Hebrews 6, it says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, speaking of like that tabernacle in heaven, he, he, he washed us clean, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now here's the inspired commentary. You don't need me to tell you what Melchizedek's about because God tells us right here in Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Remember how he blessed him? And to Abraham, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything he tithed. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So far, this is really easy. Melchizedek, okay, this, I got this. This is easy peasy stuff, right? Points of comparison. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Melech means king. Tzedek means righteous. He's righteous king. That's who he is. That's what his name means. So we have, oh, by the way, there's a debate on this as well. Did it really mean king of righteousness or did it mean my king is righteous or did it mean that his name meant Melech, uh, king is is Tzedek, which is the name of this pagan deity, is my king. Tzedek is my king. Okay, pause. The inspired commentary says Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. So it, it helps us and translates this for us. There's a big debate on this. I'm not going to get into it, but they've even found uh, a text in Egypt that showed Melchizedek as simply a name that meant king of righteousness. So we, we have like ancient verification for this. I share that because I never know who might watch these, this commentary, these videos, and maybe they needed to hear that. Yes, they actually found evidence to support that. Um, so, easy peasy, right? Jesus is the king of righteousness. He is the righteous king, right? First John 2, 1, it says, um, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is righteous. The only one who's righteous. He is, remember when Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. And then 1 John 2, 1 goes, yeah, Jesus, the righteous. Like, yes, that's him. He is the righteous one. But he's also the king of peace. 
See, a righteous king implies he's going to bring down righteous judgment on sinners, but he's the king of peace, bringing and restoring our relationship with God, king of Salem, Shalom. Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is ultimately the prince of peace. He's our king of peace. So there's a contrast here. Um, I love the, in, the intensity of the cross when you really think about it conceptually, about how the wrath of God and the love of God come together on the cross, about how the righteousness of God and the peace of God come, to, come together on the cross. Uh, Psalm 85.10 is one of my favorite verses that encapsulates that. It says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet righteousness and peace kiss each other. And I just picture the cross, like righteousness, which would require judgment and peace, kiss each other. They meet. And through the cross, we're reconciled. He's our king of righteousness and he's our king of peace. Um, This to me is more confirmation that God, from the moment when Melchizedek is doing this stuff with Abraham, God is planning out how this will come out in the text of scriptures so that you could study it later and see Jesus. That this was all an agenda on God's mind. And this means something else. Names can have typological significance. I mean, if Melchizedek's name, and he's king of Salem, he's just the king, but it means king of peace, and I can go, ah, that relates to Jesus. Then this means that in my little toolbox, I can go, I can look up the meaning of a name and see if that maybe has some significance as a type of Christ as I'm studying the Old Testament, which is just kind of fun. So now you can do this. Now I have no agenda here, I don't know what names I'm going to apply this to exactly, except to say, I think that God tends to do things consistently. And if he does it with Melchizedek, he may do it with somebody else and somewhere else in the scripture. And I think I can think of places where I think he does this and we'll get into that stuff in future weeks. So does this mean every name is a type of Christ? Adam and Eve? No, no, not necessarily. Um, But it means that it could be there. And that's, that's fun for me. I can look at these New Testament examples of types to give me a tool, a tool set to go to the Old Testament on my own. Um, I remember we had a, a, a class called Hermeneutics when I was in the school of ministry. And in this book, Hermeneutics, it was a fantastic book. They talked about principles for Bible study. But when it came to types, they had a few principles. And the last, they had like five principles on identifying types of Jesus in the Old Testament. The last principle, I think it was the fifth one, I totally disagree with. And the last principle was, It's only a type if it's clearly identified in the New Testament as a type of Christ. And I was like, well, why do you even need the other four principles? If that's that's one of your principles, I don't even need to think about types. I just make a list of the New Testament examples, and that's all we get. But yet, that's not all we get. That's really not all we get. There's no reason why I can't. I mean, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, we did this in the first week on this uh, Jesus in the Old Testament thing. The road to Emmaus, Jesus opened and beginning at Moses and through all the prophets, right? All the scriptures, he shows them the things that pertain to him. There's more. There's more. And I think it's one of the noblest things you can do to soberly look for types of Jesus throughout the Old Testament. So verse three, let's continue. Verse three in Hebrews seven. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Here's the debate. <laughs> now, that's, that's the verse right there. That one verse gives us most of the debate we're going to look at. So he doesn't have father or mother. So, I mean, he's eternal. He's unborn. He's undying. No father, no mother, no genealogy. He doesn't have a beginning of days and he doesn't have an end of life. He resembles the Son of God and he continues as a priest forever. Now... Depending on how you take this, 
um, you may think that Melchizedek isn't a type of Christ. He's actually Jesus. He just continues as a priest forever. And he's, okay, who's, who's uncreated? Jesus, right? Like that would, that would fit. That would fit. So on the pro side, for people who think that Jesus, this is a Christophany, an actual appearance of Christ, um, he's eternal, unborn, undying. That would imply it. Hebrews 7, 8 um, might imply a Christophany as well because <clears throat> verse 8, it says, In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, speaking of the Levites, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Well, he lives? Like, does Melchizedek still live today then? Is that the point? But I have some things that make me think it's not a Christophany. So let me share that with you because that's my personal opinion. We can, feel, we can disagree on this issue. I certainly disagree with plenty of people on it. But here's the reasons. Um, the Old Testament, if you took it by itself, you would never have thought Melchizedek was eternal. Right? Like if you just read the Old Testament in isolation of the New, you never would have thought he was eternal. It just wouldn't, he just, he's a guy. He's the king of Salem. He's a priest of the Most High God. Like, but, but eternal? Unborn? Undying? Like those things? No, I, I don't think so. Um, in verse 3, it says, resembling the Son of God. It doesn't say as the son of God. If it was a Christophany, I wouldn't think he would be said to be resembling the son of God. I would think he would just be said to be the son of God, right? If it was Jesus, I would have thought having either beginning of days nor end of life, but as the son of God, he continues, you know, as a priest forever. But instead he's resembling the son of God. In verse 20 of chapter 6, Hebrews 6.20, quoting the Old Testament as well, it says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It doesn't say you are Melchizedek, a priest forever. That would be the implication if Melchizedek and Jesus are the same person. But instead, if Jesus is similar to Melchizedek, we have that. Um, so that would uh, that would also cause some problems because Melchizedek was king of Salem. So we're not talking, okay, every Christophany I've read so far, Jesus shows up and then leaves. But if Melchizedek is a Christophany, he was literally ruling and reigning in Salem long-term, and functioning as a priest there for those people. And that, to me, seems a little bit unlikely. I'm not saying it couldn't possibly happen, but it would almost imply that Jesus came and lived an actual full life before he came with the incarnation, and that's confusing to me. So you see why, at first glance, you go, that's, a Christ, that's Christophany, but when you start to look at the other puzzle pieces, you go, that's kind of creating some problems for us if we have that perspective, I think. In verse 4, it says, um, see how great this man was? Speaking of Melchizedek, um, I just want to note, it doesn't say, see how great he is. It's just weird to refer to him in the past tense in that sense. And in verse 21 of chapter 7, it says, he was made a priest by an oath. And we'll get to there. We'll get there in a minute. He was made a priest by an oath, and that took place either, like in, Mel in okay, Psalm 110, occurs hundreds and hundreds of years after Abraham. And it says, you are a priest forever. Well, Hebrews 7's commentary on Psalm 110 says, he became a priest by an oath. Meaning, the person Psalm 110's talking about was not already a priest. Melchizedek was already a priest. So if he became a priest by an oath, it either happened at the time of David when the oath was given, or it was, you are, and it was a declaration about Jesus, and when he came, he became the priest, you know, priest in the order of Melchizedek. So there's another reason to think it's not a Christophany. Um, so Jesus was a priest, made a priest long after Melchizedek had already been a priest. So then those are two different people. Um, and in verse 15 of Hebrews 7, it says, quote, another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Okay, so it's not the same guy. 
that's the context I see there. Um, some people say, no, 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 Mike, you're wrong. It's not a Christophany. It's not a human who represents Jesus. It's an angel who represents Jesus. So Melchizedek's different than Jesus, but it's an angelic being. That's why it can be said to be without father or mother. Except it also says he's without beginning of days or end of life. And angels do have a beginning of days. So I, I feel like that doesn't really apply to angels if we take that literally. So how do I explain the, the statements without beginning of days? How do I explain that if it's not, if that's a human? How's a human without beginning of days? Here's what I think, and I hope I can express this well. See, I think I get it, right? But getting it out of my mouth to someone else, that's the challenge. That's the real challenge of teaching. So um, I think that Melchizedek had a beginning of days and an end of life and a genealogy. I think the point is, it's not written in the text. I think Hebrews is saying, God included the story written this way, so it would be a picture of Christ. Which to me is kind of exciting when you think about the implications. So there was, a, there was more to the story of Melchizedek, but the, the particular details written and the ones left out were written in and left out so it would be a better picture of Jesus. Does that make sense? I, ho- I hope this makes sense. It means that as I'm looking at the Old Testament, I not only look at the people and events, but I look at how it was written. Why was this detail just... That, there, was, there was more to that guy's life, but it was left out because God wanted to draw a better picture of Christ through the Old Testament. Melchizedek had a genealogy, in my opinion. I could be wrong, but in my opinion, he had a genealogy. But how is he without genealogy? In the story. In Genesis 14, there's no genealogy. In Genesis 14, he doesn't start his life. He doesn't end his life. He just shows up, does his thing, and he's gone. And we don't know any more details about him. I think in that sense, he's a picture of Jesus Christ in the text. And that's the point. It means that the text was more the goal than the actual guy himself. This means that the Bible is more profound and more important than maybe we've realized. And so to me, that, that, that here's, here's how I view it. Call Melchizedek a Christophany, you have to answer those other questions that I have a real hard time answering. I don't know how to answer those issues. If you call uh, Melchizedek a picture of Christ, I feel as though I can answer the genealogy issue, the without beginning of days and end of life. I feel like I can answer all those issues and the other issues, and it all makes sense. So that's my personal view. Um, yeah, there's, there's other guys, too, where you, you, you read about them. Uh, Jephthah, we'll get there. I, I don't know why, but Jephthah is one of my favorite pictures of Christ. Interesting. Um, but, but you read his story and you realize in these few verses in the beginning of a story, it's so a picture of Christ, in my opinion. And if they had added more details, more and more details about his life, it would have broke the picture down. That's the point, you see. Joseph, the story of Joseph. We read, we have a lot of him, right? But we, if we read more and more and more about him, it would eventually start to just look less and less like Jesus. But we have less information in order to keep it looking more like Jesus. That's the idea. So that's my perspective, my, my view on that, um, for what it's worth, and you may disagree, uh, but you're wrong. All right, so Hebrews, Hebrews 7, we'll continue, Hebrews 7, verse 4, it says, See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And now he's talking about the greatness of Melchizedek, because it relates to the greatness of Jesus. Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus. And those descendants of Levi who receive, this is, now this is a challenging part, but stick with me here. The descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers. Israelites tithe to the Levites. That's who they tithe to. Though these are uh, also are descended from Abraham. 
But this man, who does not have his descent from them, receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, those are the two points he's going to highlight. Spoiler right here. They tithed, Abraham tithed, and Melchizedek blessed him. And he's going to say these two things make Melchizedek better than Abraham. Because you tithe to someone better than you. Spiritually, in some sense. At least in this context. And then the one who blesses is greater than the one who gets the blessing. So he's going to, he's just trying to show how great Melchizedek is to show how great Jesus is. So verse seven, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Abraham then would be inferior to Melchizedek. In the one case, tithes, back to the tithe issue, are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let me highlight verse 9. One might even say, you could actually translate that phrase like, in a sense. So Paul's, again, he's drawing analogies to Jesus. He's not saying that Levi was literally in the loins of Abraham. He's going to know. In the, in the story, Levi's from Abraham. So in a sense, Levi's tithing too. So what's the point? Melchizedek's better than Levi. And the Melchizedekian priesthood that Jesus has is better than the Levit- Levitical priesthood, which now you zoom out and go, that's what Hebrews is about, right? Jesus is better. Jesus is the fulfillment and the better fulfillment of all those Old Testament realities. And what blows me away is this means that the priesthood that was to supersede the Levites came long before the Levites and Abraham himself tithed to that guy. That's pretty significant, isn't it? And if I was Jewish, I'd be like, good, because I want to know there's a solid grounding in the Old Testament for who Jesus is and what he does. So he's greater than Abraham for two reasons, right? Abraham tithes to Melchizedek, and two, he blessed Abraham, and the inferior is blessed by the superior. You have examples of this in the scripture and other places. You know, the father is going to bless the sons before he passes away, that sort of thing. To highlight this, to, to, to draw our attention to this, verse 6 of Hebrews 7, it says, He blessed him who had the promises. Remembering how great Abraham was, in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And he comes and he blesses Abraham. Abraham. That's a kind of a big deal. So how does this relate then um, to, the Mel, to, the, uh, to the Levites and the, Mel, the Melchizedekian thing going on here? Is again a part of Hebrews saying that even the system of the law that was coming through the Levites, that it was, it was um, its forerunner, not forerunner, but it was preceded by this guy Melchizedek who interceded for Abraham to draw him to God by being the priest between Abraham and God. And then yet he's a picture of Christ. And then Psalm 110 prophetically speaks about this future priest king who will come in the order of Melchizedek. So it's, I think it's just absolutely amazing. It shows us the purpose of the whole, like literally Melchizedek speaks to something about the purpose of the Levitical law in general. It's a pretty profound thing, but we got to move on. So verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood for under it, the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Just highlighting what, why bother having a priest after the order of Melchizedek if, if the Aaronic priesthood is enough, if the Levites are enough. For when there was a change in the priesthood, 
there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. So Jesus, this is speaking of Jesus, he comes from a different tribe that's not the Levites. He comes from the tribe of Judah, the kingly tribe. So how could he be a priest? You're not part of the Levites. Because you're a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Do you see how the, the question marks are answered with the exclamation point of Jesus Christ? Really neat stuff. I wish I could like pause and just teach for 15 minutes on that one concept. All right, verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with, what, with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, become a priest, as in he wasn't already a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you were a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, highlighting the foreverness of that priesthood. Every one of the high priests would die. It was kind of planned out, right? In fact, the whole city of refuge thing happens when the high priest dies and all like this is kind of expected. But Jesus, when he comes as a priest, he's a priest, how long? Forever. So there was an eternal priesthood promised and the Levitical thing was a temporary thing to be a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ is the idea. So this solves a problem with Jesus. Jesus, he can be the king of Israel because he's of the tribe of Judah, so he's in the proper line of descent. But how could he be a priest? How could he intercede on our behalf? How could he ever live to intercede for me? Because he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this is an Old Testament promise, an Old Testament truth. And it's only answered in Jesus. Um, And it predates the Levitical priesthood. And one of the messages that we get as we're doing Jesus in the Old Testament is this is not about us reading Jesus into the Old Testament. It really is kind of like saying, guys, the Old Testament doesn't make sense without Jesus. It just doesn't make sense without him. You have lots of passages where I don't even know what you're supposed to do with Melchizedek or the promise in Psalm 110 without Jesus. How do you answer this without him? You don't. All right, verse 18. We're continuing. Hebrews 7 is a long chapter. For on the one hand... A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. It was good. The law was good. It just couldn't fix you. It just pointed out your error. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such with an oath. The Levites, the the Aaronic priests as well, um, which is like a subdivision within the Levites. Uh, Verse 21, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now, I'm just going to pause for a second. Please don't underestimate the incredible importance of seeing Jesus throughout the Old Testament. You can't do this with Muhammad. And I like when people try. You can't do this with Joseph Smith. Remember what happened when Joseph Smith looked to find prophecies about himself in the Old Testament? He added extra verses at the end of Genesis in order to make something there. Because it doesn't exist. The, the, the passages, because I, Mike, people can find anything they want in the Old Testament. I'm like, go ahead. You find your proof text for, for whatever guy you want, on Song Hong or some other weird thing going on, and I'll get my proof text for Jesus, and let's compare the quality of those texts. How that sound? You can't do this with anyone else. In fact, if Jesus isn't the Messiah, then the truth is the Old Testament is just failed. If he's not the Messiah, the Messiah didn't come at all. And it's over. And the the hope of mankind is, is just gone. But he is. So verse 22. 
This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, the one who guarantees it. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, which is something that prevents a lot of us from continuing. Uh, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, sometimes we read this verse and we think Jesus is praying for me. He's interceding for me. It's a different kind of thing. It's not that he's praying for you. It's kind of better than that. It's that his constant life, his living life after sacrificing for you is constantly making you close to God. It's like the blood of the intercession of blood. How can you draw near to God? I'm living to intercede. Am I enough to bring you to God? Yes. And here I am always here, always alive, always interceding for you. That's a powerful verse to remember for those who struggle with feeling condemned, with feeling beat up, with feeling like you're, how could I be forgiven? I'm, I'm like, in Jesus, how could you not be forgiven? Really, how on earth can you not be forgiven in Christ? I don't see how it's possible. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses, or their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. And this is where we could easily miss, I think, some of the points we should catch. The word of the oath is that verse in Psalm 110.4, right? You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's the oath. I've sworn and will not relent. You're a priest. That oath came after the law. Meaning after the Levitical law is already in place, God promises some future priest. Why bother promising a future priest if the priests we have are enough? Do you see? The insufficiency of the law is written into it so that we would know it was temporary. And that's the point there. Really neat stuff, man. One of these days, I'd love to actually do a full-on teaching through the book of Hebrews, like taking our time going through it on like Sunday nights or something like that. And, and maybe by then I'll figure out what to do with Hebrews 6. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I'll just get a guest teacher for that day. Um, that's what I did last time. So, uh, so the Melchizedekian priesthood's better because it's eternal. It's got better sacrifice. It's got a better effect. It's one time with a constant effect that lasts forever instead of a bunch of guys rising up and dying and insufficient for actually perfecting you and all that sort of thing. So, in conclusion, after I feel like I've just been going a mile a minute. Like remember those micro machine commercials? That micro-machine guy that would talk like super fast. I feel like that's what I've been doing today. So, I just knew how much I had to get through. So, um, Our tools, we've we got two things, right? One, we have Melchizedek and all the incredible richness of theology, the clarity on theology of who Jesus is and what he did for us. When we see Melchizedek in Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and the explanation in Hebrews six and uh, 5 and 7. On the other side, we get tools so that we can get better and better at finding Jesus in the Old Testament in the passages the New Testament doesn't specifically identify. And that's what we're doing. So here, here's what we're adding to our, our tool set. In particular, one thing that's really neat is names alone can be significant in finding types of Christ in the Old Testament. I don't know how you can argue with that point after finding out about Melchizedek. His title even, he's King of Salem. Like the town he's the king of ends up having meaning as far as how it pictures Christ. I think that's neat. We also see something else. It's not just Melchizedek, king of Salem. Look at how many points 
where Melchizedek connects to Jesus. He shows up, he just he doesn't have a genealogy, whether that's literal or if it's because the story has no genealogy, so it's a picture of Christ, whichever side you take on that. So there's one point, no genealogy, no mom or dad, right? No beginning of end or end of days. He's a priest and he's a king. His name means king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. Abraham tithes to him. He brings Abraham bread and wine. And there's a promise that this priesthood will... So like there's something hanging in the text that, that leaves you with a question going, how will this be fulfilled? This Melchizedekian promise, this priest forever. So there's like 10 points of correspondence to Jesus in this story. So the two tools I want to focus on is names matter. Not that they always matter, but they matter. And two, multiple points of correspondence. If you want to say this is a type of Christ, it's probably going to need to correspond to Jesus in more than one way. Because God's able to do that. So, um, yeah, so that's what I have for you guys today. And I don't even know what we're going to do next time because I haven't had time to think about that. Because I'm going to be uh, going out to Florida and they won't be doing this again for two weeks, uh, three weeks. Well, the Jesus in the Old Testament. But we'll do the Q&A thing coming up soon. So, let's pray. Um, Father God, we're uh, excited. Um, yeah, we dipped our toes, maybe even our, our whole legs, into this topic of Melchizedek. There's obviously more, much more there in the theology of it and all that. But it's exciting, God, to think that in Genesis, with Abraham, you have this priest show up who's a picture of Christ that ends up superseding the Levitical priesthood, yet it's all Old Testament. That's so exciting to us, Lord. Help us to see how you have have embedded in the Old Testament more and more about Jesus and about who he is and what he would do. Help unveil our eyes so that in, in our reading of the scriptures, the Old Testament, we see what you always intended for us to find. In Jesus' name, amen.